heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, if you've been around our church for a while, you know, one of the, my favorite things about fall coming is I, as, as soon as fall comes, I immediately begin to look forward to watching my favorite movie of all time. Now, people, people are often surprised. They say, so Tommy, what's your favorite movie? They're, they're surprised that it's not like, you know, Lone Wolf McQuaid, Delta Force 2, Good Guys Wear Black. Those are up there. But none of them comes close to the Muppet Christmas Carol. They just don't. Um, what an amazing story. If you remember the Christmas Carol story, um, remember Scrooge is a bad guy. I mean, Scrooge is such a bad guy, his name now is a bad thing. Don't be a Scrooge, right? Even though he was redeemed at the end. It's a bad thing. He was greedy, he was mean, he was heartless. And Dickens, we assume God, intervened in his life. And how did he intervene in Scrooge's life? He intervened by showing him what? His past, his future, and his present. And the whole reason he did that was for what reason? It was to get him to make some change in his present. Remember the ghost of Christmas past took him and showed him when he was a schoolboy and how even then he liked math and, and how even in his past, uh, or if you've seen him up at Christmas special, remember when he falls in love? killing me. But the girl leaves him because he cares more about his money than he cares about her. And then the ghost of Christmas present shows him the Cratchit household and little Timmy coughing in the corner. And then the ghost of Christmas future shows Scrooge these people who are arguing over a dead man's clothing. And Scrooge begins, starts to get a little worried. And then the, the, the ghost of Christmas yet to come takes him to the graveyard. And all the, the tombstones are covered with snow. And Scrooge starts to get nervous. And remember he turns to the, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And he says, I put the quote up there for you. He says, are these the shadow of the things that will be or are they shadows of things that may be only? In other words, he's saying to, to the ghost of Christmas future, is my destiny uh, sunk? Is, 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 do, do I not have any choice about what's going to happen next? And remember the, the ghost of Christmas yet to come just points. He just points. And Scrooge wipes off the, the tombstone and sees his name and he just loses it and he starts crying. And he wakes up and he's in his bed. I'm as right as the weather. I mean, he's so excited and his life is changed because what, what Dickens did was he used the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas future in order to affect some kind of change in Scrooge's present. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, that's exactly what's going on here too. We've talked a lot about the book of Revelation, how it's about the fact that Jesus wins, right? He's won in the past and he's won in the future and he's even winning right now. But if you want to understand the book of Revelation at some level, you have to ask yourself this question. Are these the things that shall be or the things that may be only? What do I mean by that? As we get deeper and deeper into the book of Revelation, you see the visions getting clearer and clearer. And on one hand, you have this vision of the followers of the Lamb. We, looked at, we saw that last week, the 144,000 on Mount Zion with the Lamb. And they are on glory and they're singing to Him. And everything is great and glorious on one hand. On the other hand, you have those who choose not to follow the Lamb. 
They choose not to follow the Lamb. And by not choosing to follow the Lamb, it makes them de facto followers of the dragon. And for them is reserved wrath. The full justice of God. But the interesting thing is this book of Revelation is, is something that people could read now. And so you have to ask the question of yourself, not are the events going to happen, but how, do they, how they affect me. Is this something that shall be or is it something that may be only? And the answer is it depends on how you respond to the book of Revelation. In other words, remember the book of Revelation is at least three different types of literature sort of mashed up into one. Remember, it's, it's called an apocalypse, and an apocalypse simply means to reveal. It's, it's as if a, a curtain is being pulled back. And what's being revealed? What's being revealed is the person and work of Jesus in all of his glory. It's also a letter. It's very practical. Right? John says to the seven churches that are in Asia, and he tells them stuff that he wants them to do. But more than anything else, I think for, as far as trying to figure out how to apply the book of Revelation, you need to understand that he calls it a prophecy. And in the Old Testament or the New Testament, anywhere in the Bible, even if prophecies are something that predicts the future, which, by the way, most often they're not, but even if they're, they're predicting the future, every prophecy is given in order to affect some moral outcome. In other words, every prophecy in the Old Testament and the whole book of Revelation is a call to action. It's a call to some action. And the question is, how are you going to act? What are you going to do as a result of hearing the book of Revelation? For some people, maybe you're Christians, you, you hear the book of Revelation, it's a prophecy, and you, you realize what you need to do is you need to be more outwardly faced. You need to be engaging the world. For other people, you may not be a Christian, and what, what you might need to think about is, what, do I, what am I going to do with this person called Jesus? How am I going to deal with him? Should I deal with him? What, what's the outcome if I don't? So the question is, at some level, are these things that shall be or things that may be only? And it comes all down to what you are going to do with Jesus and what you're going to do with this book and what this book teaches us. So what does this book teach us, among other things? The book teaches us a lot about these people that are called conquerors or called overcomers. And who are the ones who conquer? Who are the ones that overcome? Those, again, are the followers of the Lamb. Christians, people who follow Jesus. And of the seven churches, each of the seven churches was given a major sort of promise. You see, there's judgment reserved for people who don't follow the Lamb. But for those who do follow the Lamb, you know, you see them in front of you. Uh, access is given to the tree of life, deliverance from the second death, being made pillars in the household of God. All these promises are, are given to those who overcome. The letter is written to those who overcome. How do they overcome? Again, we've learned over and over again in the book of Revelation that they overcome through the blood of the Lamb. What the book of Revelation teaches us is that the work of Jesus is completely and utterly finished. I've told you several times, Eugene Peterson said there's no new information in the book of Revelation. It's old information given in a new way. And what the old information is, is that Jesus has completely and utterly won. And because Jesus has won to the extent in which you trust him and your faith is in him and you are found in him, you also win or conquer. And yet there are lots of pressure to, on the seven churches, for sure. Political pressures, economic pressures, religious pressures, a lot of the same things we go through. And so again, what the book of Revelation does is that it should motivate us both to not cave in to that pressure, but also to thrive in and through it. So with all of that said, we looked last week at 
chapter 14. In chapter 14 and 15, it's hard to, I've told you this before, you know, you say, gosh, that guy complains a lot. Revelation is hard to preach. In fact, I talked to a guy, this is a side note, I talked to a guy this week who did his doctoral dissertation on Presbyterian pastors preaching Revelation. In our denomination, one person has ever done past chapter 3. So you guys are in good shape if I live to chapter 16. But in chapter 14, it starts very positively, right, with the Lamb and his followers. And then it talks about judgment that is to come, and then judgment happens. That's where we start today, is the judgment is actually being affected. And then it ends again, chapter 15 ends with the Lamb and his followers again. So... With all of that said, we're going to look in, as we look at verses chapter 14, 14 through 5, 4, we're going to look at two harvests, we're going to look at another sign, and we're going to look at an old song. In order to understand the first, the two harvests, really what you need to understand at some level is the Jesus parable of the wheat and the tares, or if you're using a more modern translation, it would be Jesus' parable of the wheat and the weeds, I believe. And I'm going to read it to you. I have quite a bit of reading to do this morning, but just hang there with me. So Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 24, says this. It says, He, that is Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, when the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done that. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." And then later on, his disciples, it says, then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire. So it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. That sounds an awful lot like Revelation, doesn't it? That's because I think it's the same teaching that you find in Revelation what, is, what do we learn in the parable of the wheat and the weeds? It's a pretty simple parable, actually. It's something that everyone would have understood. A farmer planted good seed, and wheat was growing, and someone came in and planted weeds. And the people who worked in the field said, do you want us just to, to go cut everything down? And he said, no, because if you cut everything down, then the wheat will be harmed as well as the weeds. And he says, just wait till harvest time, then harvest it all, harvest it all up, and we'll separate the wheat from the chaff or the wheat from the weeds. And in Jesus' explanation of that, he says the wheat are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. He's drawing a pretty dark line between either following him or not following him. And at the end of the age, that's when they will be separated. 
Now, just as a point of practical application now, at the end of the age, they will be separated, but until the end of the age, you and I will always have to deal with the fact that evil is cast all around us. And if you're naive to that fact, you're going to probably always be disappointed. Now, should you be as cynical as me? Probably not. But should you be aware that the, 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 the wheat and the weeds are constantly growing side by side until the end of the age, and then they will be harvested? And that's what we look at in the book of Revelation. The first, there's two harvests. The first one is in verses 14 through 16. John says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on a cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. I'm just going to point out three things. We have a lot to get through. The three things were reaper, a command, and a harvest. Notice who the reaper is here. One like a son of man. Almost every commentator agrees that this is a reference to Jesus. And remember when Jesus left in the book of Acts, the angel said he would return in like manner on the clouds. So here you have Jesus, the son of man, sitting on the clouds, waiting. He's waiting to pull in his full Harvest. He's waiting for the end of the age. And then the next, what you have is a command. What's the command? The command says, And another angel came out of the temple with a loud voice and to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So if, if Jesus is the man, if Jesus is the one wearing the crown, why does an angel have to come and tell him to do anything? That's a good question, to be honest with you. Uh, what, what seems to be going on, if you look at the rest of the New Testament, remember when people asked Jesus, when will the end of the age come? What he said? I don't know. No one knows but the Father. Probably what's going on here is the Father is sending a messenger. John's getting to see this play out to tell Jesus it's time. It's go time. If you've ever been in the military, you know what it's like to hurry up and wait. And so you're finally, you're just on edge, you're on edge, you're on edge, and then finally they say go, and you just can't wait to go. And that's what happens immediately. The angel says, now is the time, and immediately reaping happens. And it says that, the harvest, in verse 16, it says, So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now notice in verse 15, the end, it says, For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And as you're reading Revelation, you, have to, you can't help but think, I couldn't help but think, of other places where John uses this same kind of language. In other words, at the end of the age, Jesus will finally and utterly reap all those who are his, all those who have trusted in him. But what about now? Remember John chapter 4, Jesus meets this woman at the well from Samaria. And, you know, that's another sermon all in of itself. No one would talk to her because she was Samaritan. No one would talk to her because she's a woman. No one would talk to her because she's an adulteress. And yet, after being transformed by Jesus, she goes and tells her whole village about him, and they start coming unto him. And as, Je- as they're coming to Jesus, and he's standing on a hill with his disciples, they, be- they remember that they actually left to get him something to eat earlier. And here's the conversation. Has anyone brought him something to eat? Verse 33 of chapter 4 in John. And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit 
for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. I mean, think of that picture. They're asking him about something to eat. They're standing on a hill. All of the Samaritan villages coming out and Jesus says, look, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. And what do they see? They see people, not only are they they people, but they're not Jewish. They're people from a different tribe, if you will. And Jesus says the harvest is ripe now. The reaping is happening right now. So will the reaping happen at the end of the age? Absolutely. But what Jesus has said, his whole ministry, is that the reaping is happening right now. That right now Jesus is drawing people unto himself. Right now, and every, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Jesus is working. Remember, he has won, he will win, and he is winning right now. So with that said, what about the second harvest? The second harvest, you see two angels, uh, another harvest and another location. Notice the two angels in verse 17. I'm just going to hold this. Verse 17, it says, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who had authority over the fire and called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So on one hand, you have Jesus reaping. On the other hand, you have these angels being sent to reap. By the way, the imagery of the sickle is only used one time that I can think of in the Old Testament. It's Joel chapter, 13, or chapter 3, verses 13. And it has to do with reaping unto judgment. And these angels are doing exactly that. They are harvesting too. But as Jesus harvests unto righteousness and unto himself, at the end of the age, these angels are harvesting unto judgment. And what, what happens then? Well, he says that the angel swung his sickle across the earth, gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And so the wrath of God will be born ultimately, either by Jesus or by you. The question is, which would you rather be? And I think the very next verse gives us a clue as to at least what John wants us to think or what Jesus wants us to think. And it's the location of this judgment. In verse 20 it says, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. By the way, no one really knows the significance of 1,600 stadia. The closest is that 40 is a number of judgment in the Bible, and 40 squared is 1,600. But what's more important is the location. You see, in in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, judgment happens outside the city. Judgment happens outside the camp. And John says, in the future, when all things are said and done, judgment will happen outside the camp. But we need to also remember that while it will happen in the future, it it has already happened in the past. Remember Hebrews chapter 13. Let me read to you a couple verses. John says in verse 10, or the author says, We have an altar from which those who serve at the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. You see, either at the end of the age, you will be judged outside the camp 
or you look into the past and say Jesus was already judged outside the camp. Jesus went outside the camp and bore the reproach and bore the judgment that I deserve. He bore the full wrath of God. And so you can either look back and say, I trust what Jesus did, or you can look forward and say, I'm going to try it on my own. I'm going to see if I can bear it. I'm going to see what it's like outside the camp. And the, the question then you have to ask, are these the things that may be or shall be only? And what the book of Revelation teaches is that it may be. In fact, you will bear the wrath of God if you will not put your trust in Jesus. And that's what the whole point of this is, because you're hearing this book being read. Even when it talks about the future, it's not over, or you wouldn't be hearing it. As we continue, look at um, another sign. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. In verse 1 you see, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So what we have going on here again, remember John interlocks things. It's like when you're watching, you ever watch a news show, and in the context of watching a news show, they say, and after the break, we're going to show X, whatever it is. And then at, you wait through the break, and you sit there, and they don't show it. Oh, man, that drives me crazy. And then another commercial that comes in, they'll say, after the break, we're going to show our special on you know, left-handed skateboarders, whatever it is you're excited about. And they don't show it. And really, they're just dragging you along for the whole story so you'll pay attention. In some ways, that's what John does. Because what he's saying right here, he's actually starting a whole different section of the book of Revelation. This is the opening to the seven bowls of God's wrath. And so in the middle of this interlude between the, the, the trumpets and the bowls of God's wrath, John actually starts talking about the bowls of God's wrath. And so he says, Then I saw another sign, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And he says, Now, after the break, we'll talk about that. Because he doesn't go on and talk about that. He instead gives a word of encouragement to the church. But there was one thing I wanted to point out to you. A couple things. One is that the seven bowls of God's wrath that we're getting ready to enter into, they're all about plagues. They're all about this Exodus imagery. That's why we sung the plagues today. I think it's cool. Um, but also, notice what the, the seven bowls of God's wrath do. John says right there, at the end of it, he says, with these, with them, the wrath of God is finished. So at the end of the age, the wrath of God will be completely and utterly poured out when the seventh bowl of wrath is poured out. Or at the cross. Remember what Jesus said. He spoke seven words from the cross and in John's gospel, the last thing he said after he said, I thirst, and he drank a bitter wine, he said what? It is finished. The wrath of God has been completely and utterly born. The curse has been born. I took all of your sin and you can have all of my righteousness. Would you take it? It's finished. You see, it was either finished at the cross or it will be finished at the end of the time. But it will ultimately, for every person here and every person in the hearing of this, it ultimately will be finished. The question is, will Jesus bear that or will you and I bear that? And then finally, we look at this old song. As we look at it, I want to look at three things about it. Who sings it, what do they sing, and the direction that they sing. 
In other words, to whom do they direct this song? So who sings this song? It's those who have conquered. Notice in verse 2, he says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hand. So you have an interesting image here because in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, remember that's where we saw the sea of glass the first time. And the sea in the Old Testament is always a bad thing. It's always chaos. And yet in the providence of God under his control, it's as if it were glass. And here we have the sea of glass, but also it's sort of peppered with fire. No one really knows exactly what that image is about. Many of the church fathers thought that was the fiery trials through which the, the martyrs had to pass. But either way, the saints are there in the midst of chaos being governed by God, and they are singing. In other words, remember all the way back to, to, to the beginning of 14, we talked about the fact that all the church is an army, the 144,000. And here they are, as God has calmed the sea, singing. So that's who sings. The, the ones who sing are God's church, but it's the ones who conquered. Notice what they've conquered. They've conquered the first beast, they've conquered the second beast, and they've conquered what both of them together have put upon them. Notice it says in, in verse 2, it says, they conquered the beast and its image and the number of his name. Remember the first beast was all about political pressure. And if you look at the seven churches, it's abundantly clear that they were under political pressure from Rome to cave, to worship Caesar, which led to also the second beast, which is more religious pressure. And we found out at the end of chapter 13, right, this number 666, that whoever has the mark of the beast, it affects them economically. In other words, the ones who overcome were the ones who did not cave to political pressure, to religious pressure, or even economic pressure, but to the very end held tight to Jesus. And the reason they were able to hold tight to Jesus, we learn several times in the book of Revelation and through the whole Bible, is because Jesus is holding tight to them that their names were written in the Lamb's book of life. So they overcome by not caving to all of these things. And what comes next? What do they sing? Notice verse, the first part of verse 3. It says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Now, has it ever struck you as odd, if you've read the book of Revelation, why they sing the song of Moses? And what is the song of Moses? For one, the Song of Moses, most, there are two songs called the Song of Moses. It's in, one is in Exodus 15, one is in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Most people think, I think it makes more sense because Moses is called the servant before the one in Exodus 15, like he is here, that that's the reference. And do you remember that song? I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. My Lord, my God, da 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 da. Remember that? God delivers them from Pharaoh with mighty plagues, with mighty actions that no one else could have done. He kills their firstborn. They go into the desert. They come to the edge of the Red Sea and they say, He delivered us from Egypt, but now He's left us and forsaken us. Oh no, it's not over yet. He opens the Red Sea. They cross through on dry land and as Pharaoh and his boys start riding through, all the waters crash over and they drown. And what is Moses' first response to that when it's all over? They sing. And they sing about the glorious things that God has done for them, the victory that he has wrought for them. And you know what's interesting? In this text it says the song of, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. 
Probably a better translation would be they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, namely the song of the Lamb. In other words, there's not two songs here, there's only one. So why would people in the, in the book of Revelation be singing the, book, the song of Moses, but it also be called the song of the Lamb? And the answer is, it's because the song that the church has been singing since the first page of the Bible has been the same song. It's a song of God finding his people in the midst of oppression and bondage and helpless and hopeless in and of themselves and delivering them with great and mighty deeds. And they sing. Whether it's in the Exodus, whether it's crossing the Jordan, whether it's the cross of Jesus. You see, the people in the Exodus, they sung about God's great deliverance and they didn't really even know everything they were singing about, but we know. We know that Exodus is nothing compared to the cross. That Exodus is nothing compared to the bondage from which Jesus delivered us. And because of that, we sing. We sing the song of Moses. And not only that, but I want you to notice the direction they sing. And I think this is important. At the end, look at, it says, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. So why do I ask this question, what direction do they sing? Remember when someone asked Jesus uh, to summarize the law, just teacher, can you summarize the law? Remember what he said? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus summarizes the law, both parts of the summary of the law direct us outward. We're to love God outward. We're to love our neighbor outward. Notice the direction of this song. First, it's outward. Contrary to some Christian music, the primary pronoun here is second person. I always have to go through them in my head. I, you, he, she. It's not first person. He doesn't say, I, 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 I. I did such a good job. I survived. I made it through. I was such a good person. I was so moral. I did all these good things. The song that the saints sing at the end of the age is you, 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 you. You did it. You delivered me. Your ways are just. Your ways are true. Your ways are everything. Notice he says, great and amazing are your deeds. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. You alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. But there's something else. So it's first the song is directed outward toward God. But it's also directed outward. I'm using this word just for, so you'll remember. It's also directed outward toward goats. That imagery is from Matthew 25 where Jesus says, I'll separate the sheep and the goats, those who follow me, those who don't follow me, those who love me, those who don't love me. You see, if it was already over at this point... In history, it will be over when we get to this point, but the people who are reading this right now, to you, to the people back in John, say, it's an invitation. Why is it? Did you not notice a question mark behind it? He says, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Given everything you've heard so far in the book of Revelation, who would not? You know, one of my favorite movies, besides The Muppet Christmas Carol, is also Enchanted. Have you seen Enchanted? It's cartoon, you have to see it. It's cartoon characters, and they somehow become real, and the princess is lost in New York, and Prince Charming's looking for her, and Prince Charming is the most disgusting narcissist who ever lived. And he has an assistant with him who's constantly guilty and wondering about if he's good enough, 
And at some point, his assistant looks at Prince Charming and says to him, Sir, do you ever not like yourself? And Charming looks in the mirror, What's not to like? And he goes about his way. To him, it's the most simple question in the world. What's not to like? When you look at the gospel of Jesus, I ask you this question. What's not to like? Who will not fear the Lord? Does anyone really want to to confront bearing the wrath of God on their own, to tread the winepress of the wrath of God all on their own? What's not to like about the fact that Jesus has come and borne all that and it's over? And in fact, not only that, is there anything that could keep you from singing? I've told you before, but Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said that the reason people didn't become Christians in his church is because he, he said of his church, he said, you guys are so miserable. And I would never say that. But I have to ask the question, do we sing? I don't mean just do you sing like I do as I'm walking down the halls, which I do all the time. But does your heart sing? And is the world noticed? Is the world changed because of that? Is your heart, the song of your heart directed outward? And I th- I'm pretty sure I've shared this story before. It's a true one. I do have this thing. I don't know if it's a disorder or what, but when I work, I sing. I literally physically sing. And in college, I was a waiter at the Olive Garden. And in, in, in Tallahassee, the Olive Garden's like where you take a prom date, so don't look down on it, right? It's a big deal there. And as I would walk back and forth through the alley, I would just sing at the top of my lungs. I don't know why. And I remember, I remember very clearly this one time, I was singing, Lo, He Comes on Clouds Descending, carrying the dishes. Lo, He Comes on Clouds Descending. Once. And I was singing, and at some point a girl stopped me. Her name was Julie, and she said, Tommy, I need to ask you two things. First thing, why are you singing? Second, what are you singing? I met Julie on break and she became a Christian that day. That day. And as I was leaving college for seminary, uh, all these folks at, at this restaurant gave me a big party and, and they actually gave me money. Many of them weren't Christians. I wonder if it was like a payoff, get out of here, finally. As I was leaving, she, she yelled out and she said, Tommy, and I looked back and she said, thanks for singing. Thanks for singing. Now, do you have to walk around like, a nut, like I do oftentimes, singing, not noticing? No. But is the song of your heart directed outward? Is it directed outward to all the things that God has done for you on one hand? And is it directed outward so that people around you could tell something has happened? There's something different. Do they say, why do you sing? What are you singing? Think about that. Let me pray. Father, I pray that as we move forward as a church, um, that more and more people would hear us singing, that this whole neighborhood would hear the song of this church, that the whole state, our country, the world would hear the song of Moses, the Lamb, and the song of the Lamb emanating from this place, and as a result, uh, the world would be changed. I pray that that would start even now in this room and work its way out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.